0: Well, obviously, uh, it's a big blessing to me to have my son doing that, but uh, as I say regularly to you, when we have students come up and they're going on a mission trip somewhere, we should get behind it. If you can help him get there and and do the things the Lord has called him to do in a bridge for spreading the gospel, um, uh, let me encourage you to do that, all right? And if you have some questions for him, uh, he'll be around. You can pick up his paper there in the back and uh, be a blessing to help him get there. Thank you for that. All right, I'd like you, if you would, to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, as you know if you've been here, we have a continued study going through uh, the pastoral epistles. In particular, 1 Timothy is where we've been. We've come to the last chapter. And as that letter is given to Timothy, both of these letters are given to Timothy so that he knows how to conduct himself in the household of faith, which is the church, the pillar and support of the truth. We know that there's a lot of things covered here, and one of the main things that happens, perhaps, and you may have experienced it in a phone call with someone you haven't spoken to in a while, uh, you get towards the end and then a number of things pop up. You wanna make sure you remember to tell them this and that and some other things, and that's kind of what we have here going on at the end of the letter. A number of topics are gonna to be covered here, which will help Timothy be equipped to do what needs to do. I'd like us to pick up and read right there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses three through five. And our second, really second topic, as we've worked our way through uh, chapter six, we looked at the at the uh, employee-employer relationship, which we see addressed by Paul in verses one and two, and then we get to verse three. We're going to talk about false teachers. It's never, it's a topic that's never far from his lips. It's a very important topic, probably. Uh, regarded as more important than perhaps the modern church does. So maybe we can come away with a new perspective today and next week. Look at verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, verse 5, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Let's stop right there. If you have been to New York City, uh, one of the favorite things to do at least one time, along with the other attractions, is a trip to Chinatown. Food is great there and there are a lot of unique gift shops But without a doubt, still one of the most popular gift items is the fake Rolex watch. Depending on how much you want to spend, anywhere from $9 to $200, the more real they will look. For the cheaper ones, as long as you don't look too closely, it will look impressive on your arm, but you can't really rely on one to keep accurate time, not even close. As far as watches go, they're not even worth $10 in that respect. But these fake Rolexes, or Folexes as they're called, are big sellers for one reason. Somewhere other than Chinatown, there are real Rolexes. If there weren't real ones somewhere, there wouldn't be a market for the fake ones. The knockoffs owe their very existence to the public's desire for the original. Jesus warned his followers that there would be no shortage of false prophets in the world so We shouldn't be surprised that there are wolves in sheep's clothing in the church, and we certainly shouldn't allow them to cause us to question the truth of the gospel. Charlatans exist because the real thing exists. Forgeries are never made of forgeries. They're not the truth, but they're the proof of the truth. Watch out, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, and we'll look at another pas- a number of passages today that will confirm that for us. But I think it's analogous to our study that we begin, we be, really began last week, and continue today. That there are people who have made it their profession to identify forgeries fake Rolexes, fake diamonds, fake $100 bills, fake sports memorabilia, and on and on. In fact, if you've ever watched a real or the real show based on a pawn shop in Las Vegas, you know there's a specialist for every collectible, valuable item to verify whether it's authentic or whether to expose it as a fake. And so lots of people know lots of things about the real thing so that they can expose what isn't the real thing. And when it comes to false teachers, Paul includes this in his first letter, to Timothy to know how to identify them. I think it's important that you realize that's why this is here. And because we've taught through Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and a number of other books, along with this first letter to Timothy, we see that Paul exhibits a huge concern in his letters for sound doctrine. He's always concerned about it. Paul mentions doctrine seven times just in 1st Timothy, not to mention its verbal form. So it's a very common phrase for him. Uh, in this letter. And he starts right away in verse 3, and he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to say, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, and that's a word that we've seen before. We looked at it last time, hetero Didaskaleo. Hetero is another of a different kind, and didascaleo is teaching. So in other words, anything that conflicts with revealed truth, deviating from the truth, it's just a very general statement with a broad application. And so it doesn't really matter who it is, And it doesn't matter what it is, if it varies from revealed truth, then it qualifies, and we must uh, put this in, it's important. If it varies from revealed truth, then it's important to identify it. And our first principle from verse 1, where Paul is helping Timothy and the church be able to detect uh, forgeries, because that's really what the purpose of the verses are for, is so that you can become a specialist in identifying what's false, And so Paul gives some signs of a false teacher so that you can recognize him just like a specialist in in instruments or whatever recognizes one that's a true Gibson and one that isn't. Because there's certain markers and this is the point of this. And so it's important that we take some time with it. And so we saw our first principle, one of the signs that he is a false teacher is that he's teaching something new. That's the first sign, something new. This isn't, oh, that's really original, that's a cool take on it or whatever. The first thing you should be thinking is, Whoa. That's something new that's departed from what we understand. A different doctrine. And that shouldn't surprise us. First, in 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul talks about hucksters in the world. That's the world he uses uh, who corrupt the Word of God. They change it like a shady salesman. They cover up the, the things about it that they don't want people to see and make it look like it's something it isn't. And then again in verses, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.2, He talks about those who handle the Word of God dishonestly. He uses the word crafty teachers. That's the word for a bait, for a trap, luring people in to trap them in things that are for uh, the teacher's own purposes. And so connected to our opening illustration, wherever God sets forth the truth, Satan presents the forgery. That's how that works then in the real world. Anytime there's a real thing that's of value, there's going to be forgeries that are going to draw people in to get the big money, but it won't be worth any of it. And so Satan puts out a forgery, it's put out there for sale, and, if, and you'll buy it if you uh, are not discerning. And if you remember, we saw in chapter 4 that people are led away from the truth. That's what Paul wants to avoid. This is a serious problem. Oh, Paul wants to put a stop to it and avoid in the future, just like in the physical world, and and collectibles, people buy in at great loss to themselves if they don't do their research. But in First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, he says, paying attention to deceitful spirits. That's what we don't want to do. Ephesians 4 says, the church has given pastors and teachers to keep us from being blown by every wind of doctrine. We're not supposed to care, follow after uh, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. But the thing that helps us understand these new things, First Timothy chapter 6, these exclusions, these redefinitions, uh, all of these false forms of teaching and false beliefs, no matter which human is saying them, no matter which human is modeling them, all find their source in demons. And I've often wondered what it would be like when we hear the false teacher speak if you actually saw the demon next to him who's giving him that information. I think we would then be aware that perhaps we shouldn't listen to it. But we shouldn't be any less aware because the Scriptures teaches us that clearly. And and I know you know this because we've looked at it before, but false religion and false beliefs and all idols spread demon doctrine and they're animated by seducing demon spirits. False teaching is the playground of demons. Paul told the church in 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3, he said, and I'd like you to look there if you would. I'm going to have you turn a few places today. I haven't done it in a couple of weeks. So look there at 2 Corinthians 11. If you were with us, this will be a review for you. But Paul tells the church in a couple of places right here in chapter 11, precisely what he's telling the church in Ephesus. He says this, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray. From the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How are they led astray? By false teaching. We're going to see. And he's afraid that they'll be deceived. And that's the issue. It's not typically that people are rebelling against the sound teaching of the Lord. It's that they hear something and they're undiscerning and they think, oh, and they have an aha moment. and They're like, oh, that's what that really means. Oh, that's the power I have. Or that's what we're supposed to do. See? And once you're deceived, it's very hard to be be drawn back. You have to explain to someone, listen, this is not correct. You've been deceived, you've been drawn into this, but this is not correct teaching. And Paul says, I'm I'm concerned, I have some anxiety, that just like Eve was deceived by Satan, what did he do? He just kind of moved the words around and made emphasis on something else and said something God didn't exactly say, and then Eve bought into it. Oh, that's what he meant. And then... Uh, the fall of man occurred. So he says, I'm concerned that you're going to be Deceived just like Eve and led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit whom you've not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. In other words, you have no discernment. It's the aha moment for you. You think, oh, that's what he meant by that. Okay, this is what Jesus actually said. No, that's not it. But you can see the same language. This is precisely what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3 and 4. He says, Uh, They exclude the words of Jesus which lead to health. So it's a whole different Jesus that's presented. One that you like and you can exclude the things you don't like. Or a different spirit who does something differently than what we see the spirit doing. Or a different gospel, an incomplete gospel. One that makes it easy to believe but not accepting the things that scripture says you have to submit to and repentant faith you have to come to. And you you remember how this false view of Jesus and this different spirit than the Holy Spirit and the gospel that doesn't save was preached by men, obviously. But verse 13 says, look there if you would, in chapter 11, verse 13. For such men, it says, are false apostles, deceitful workers. And listen, these are not complimentary terms. This isn't, wow, he's very creative and he's found an effort way to say these kinds of things. He just says what they are. They're false apostles and deceitful workers. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they're not interesting. They're not unique. They they don't have a good take on it or whatever. They're false apostles. And then it says this, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just like the master of these false teachers disguises himself and comes across as an angel of light. Therefore it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So two things here. Number one, Satan and his angels disguise themselves as angels of light and become the suppliers of false teaching, the suppliers of religion. so the suppliers of false doctrine and foolish behavior. And they animate it just enough to keep people coming back. What do I mean by that? It's just this. If people are deceived then what they're deceived into believing, demons have the right to animate that false belief just enough to keep them coming back. And there are many stories from the mission field, of course, when people go and they present uh, the gospel and someone says, well, we believe that this is the, the, the true Lord is this uh, inanimate object, or our, our uh, witch doctor said this, and then we saw this actually happen, or we prayed to the God of the sun and he made something happen for us. There was just enough animation there to keep them coming back to the what's false you see and in the modern church when you're preaching a different spirit who isn't doing what you think he's doing but then they'll say to me well I'm in the church and this is happening in the church how is this happening and I bring him to this verse and just say listen it's animated by demons you understand it brings you back just just enough things are done so that you believe that this is true but you've been deceived And then number two, false teachers are disguised as apostles of Christ, which they really aren't, but behind the system and behind the idols and behind the false teaching, all false teaching are demons. Idols are more than just carved images, false beliefs, false religions, false teachers are more than just, mark this, alternative systems of belief. Things that could be true if you're sincere enough about them. See, this is the common response. Well, we're very sincere in this, so maybe this is an alternative understanding. Well, then all we've done then is gotten rid of all false teaching now under the guise that perhaps it could be true if enough people sincerely believe it. But sincerity and belief does not validate the truth. The truth is clear, and if you're deceived, you're going to perhaps think something else is true, but that doesn't make that other thing true, see. And so this is a very common repeated thing, and it's not new in society. These are all the product of demons from the very start. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, Moses is calling the nation to obedience and he's giving them the law and he tells them in Deuteronomy 32, 16, they made him jealous with strange gods. So again, you're worshiping something that isn't the Lord, some other Jesus, some other spirit. See, that's strange gods. It's not the one the scripture teaches, so it isn't the real one. It's doctrines of demons. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They did a bunch of things the Lord said not to do. And they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So whatever they sacrificed to idols, they were actually sacrificing to what? To demons. Now, do you think that that was an easy jump for them? I mean, did you immediately go straight to sacrificing the demons? you think that's what they thought they were doing? No, of course not. They were deceived in thinking they were really serving God. And again, demons just animate that stuff enough to keep people coming back. And then this very sad commentary, the, the psalmist says in 106, verse 35 through 38, they mingled with the nations and learned their practices. So what did they do? They learned something other than the true God and something other than true worship. And they, they thought something else was true. It was an aha moment. And they served their idols, which became a snare to them. It always is, isn't it? It always is when you begin to embrace things the scripture doesn't say. That will become a snare to you because it appeals to your nature. You want to do these other things. You think it's okay to do this certain thing. They even, it says, sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Now, did they start there? You think they came into the land and mingled with those who were there and then immediately said, well, tomorrow, hey, let's sacrifice our son or our daughter to this false god. Of course not. But in deception comes more and more deception, doesn't it? Till you get to the point where you think what you're doing is pleasing to God, but it's an abomination. That's what the Lord calls it. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. And beloved people, and this is a footnote, are still sacrificing to the idols of the United States. Materialism and humanistic thought and expediency and evolution, and they're still sacrificing their sons and daughters to that, okay? Make no mistake, if you go to a March for Life, you're going to bump into people who are thoroughly convinced that it's perfectly okay to kill a human being in the womb. And they're convinced of their own rightness and their own justness. And you appear to be the one who's forcing your will on someone else. And women will march in bulk to protest any law that restricts the murder of their own children. Are they deceived? Greatly deceived. Do they think they're deceived? Of course not. They think they're enlightened. Do you see how that works? And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20. I say to you, Paul says, the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. They don't know that they're doing that. The Lord tells us that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Everything that they do is under this temporary dominion of Satan. And I don't want you, Paul says, to become sharers in demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's not possible for you to share false beliefs and then truly worship the Lord. Which I love Jacob's uh, transition to that song and about how it's important to connect true scriptural principles with what we're singing. It makes worship pure. And you can see this teaching so clearly, false religious systems and beliefs and all idols are simply focal points for demon activity, for lying, seducing spirits to purvey the doctrines of hell. See, and, and they don't care what you believe as long as you don't believe the truth, as long as you're distracted from sound doctrine. It doesn't really matter what it is. And we're spending a little time here because we didn't have the time last week uh, because this is important to firm this up in our understanding because the scripture cycles this back through so many times. And this biblical perspective helps us to have wisdom and comprehend what we see in false religion and forms of religious practices and beliefs and how false teachers are doing those kinds of things if the Lord isn't doing them. Because that's always the question from disillusioned people. Because that's is what's happening in Ephesus. And false teaching always brings about disillusionment and argument and, and, and uh, unclear understanding. And, and Paul's giving this to them and giving it to Timothy so that if they can be delivered from their deception and disillusionment, they're going to need to be willing to recognize the signs of a false teacher. And we shouldn't imagine for a moment that false teaching and false religious practices or cults or animism or syncretism or idol worship or the world systems and the attractions are simply what they appear to be on the surface All false religion is not simply a collection of ideas that appear to be without understanding or some random set of beliefs. Nothing is a random set of beliefs. If you go to Romans chapter 1, you get to verse 18, you go on, you realize that people don't come to faith because they work their way up through all these false religions. These things are presented in such a way that you disregarded the knowledge of the truth and you fell into these things, you see. And then that vacuum left from the understanding of the truth which you disregarded was filled with all the other stuff. And guess who's very, very willing to fill you with all the other things? The very same deceivers that are deceiving false teachers. The very same deceivers that provoked the Lord to, uh, to wrath because their people were deceived and they sacrificed their sons and daughters to uh, gods who are no gods and, and gods they have never known. So it's not just some random set of belief or the attractions of the culture or or are just socially constructed and vary from age to age. Behind all of those things is the dynamic influence of fallen angels and the satanic system of spirits. Behind all those things. So you have to be so diligent as a parent making sure you, 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 you're filtering what your kids are hearing and what they're seeing. One of my sons and I had a really great conversation about how, how men are denigrated in society. There's this a bunch of comments that are just common to our culture now about men and all of that. And, and, and we were talking about how I feel badly for parents who are putting their kids in a system that's feeding them these things and they're not on the other end making sure they know the true, their true identity. And one of the things we did as our boys grew up is to help them understand who they were. Who did God create them to be as a man? And what does that mean? And we get that information from the Word of God. And that's a very positive thing. Not an arrogant thing or whatever. It's just you need to know who your identity is. Who you are in Christ. Who did He creates you to be? And we live in a, a culture which has lost its way. Has no moral compass in this at all. And everything is okay. And any definition of that has to be accepted because they're deceived, aren't they? But they think that they're enlightened. So all that's all connected to each other, of course. And back in chapter four, we know that these new things excluding the works, uh, the words of Jesus, leads to health. The source of all false teaching is demons, but the mouthpiece is always human. And it's just obvious because all, all of our examples show this to be the case. It's not, there's no place where we don't see this very thing raising its head. And back in our passage of First Timothy 6:3, uh, we saw this last time. Uh, this, is, this demon doctrine works out in this way. It doesn't agree with sound words, uh, those of. Our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. And that was principle number two in identifying a false teacher. They deny things in scripture. They don't accept certain things taught by the word of God. It can't mean that. It shouldn't mean that. We can't possibly know what a holy God could possibly mean by that. But he couldn't mean this because that would be so unloving and so unkind. And that wouldn't be like God, see. And that sounds so enlightened and so smart and so godly, see. And so, so understanding. But it's just deception, And so principle number two, identifying a false teacher, a sign of a false teacher, not only do they teach new things, they deny in the Scripture. They don't accept things taught by the Word of God. They deny the words that Jesus said. They teach differently than the Word of God. They add the Scripture. They speak things that the Scripture does not teach. And then the idea expressed here is that true doctrine, faithful teaching based on Christ, which has the power to create genuine, godliness in life and health, spiritual health, and other doctrine conforming to godliness, they're excluded, including, verse 3 says, the words of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to give you this. this is, you may have seen this and understood this. About two years ago this happened, but I think it's interesting. And if you didn't know it, I'm going to give it to you. Um, Harvard University, you may know already, was founded with a mission to educate clergymen in order to minister to New England's early Puritan colonists. That's the reason why it was created. And Harvard didn't have a president for the first 70 years of its existence that wasn't a minister. But you may be interested to know that they have a new chaplain, a chief chaplain. His name is Greg Epstein, and he's an atheist. And you can look this up. Epstein, author of Good Without God, What a Billion Non-Religious People Do Believe, has been the university's humanist chaplain since 2005. You can't make this up, okay? He's a humanist chaplain. He was unanimously elected by his fellow campus chaplains as the university's chaplain's organization's new president. Unanimously elected. New York Times reported that. This 44-year-old who was raised in a Jewish household has been described as a, quote, godfather to the humanist movement, end quote. A secular values-based philosophy that focuses on people's relationships with each other instead of with God. As Harvard University's new chief chaplain, Epstein will coordinate activities of over, over 40 other chaplains for more than 20 different religious, spiritual, and ethical traditions. 40 other chaplains, the chief chaplain is a humanist and an atheist. Unanimously voted for. And everything Mr. Epstein says has one source. What is it, beloved? Demons. Everything that he's written in his life, everything that he teaches now is, has one source only. Don't mistake it. What is it? Demons. It's demon doctrine meant to deceive people into thinking they're enlightened, but they're really deceived. Deceit occurs on a human level. Demons do it in the spiritual realm, but it's always got a human face. And then we saw our third third principle, King and on Paul's emphasis, both here in this letter and in all of his teaching, and that is the doctrine conforming to godliness. That's what's excluded. And and the key to understanding this last part is the preposition conforming, or kata, which goes with or produces godliness. Godliness. So principle number three, a sign of a false teacher, is the form of a question. What does their teaching produce? What do you think Epstein's teachings produces? Does it produce godliness? He's the chief chaplain. And he was unanimously elected. So what do you think about the other 40 chaplains? Do you think their teaching is producing godliness? And an institution that was established to train ministers for the Puritan community who didn't have a president for the first 70 years that wasn't a minister... So this is a definitive test. Does the teaching produce godliness? And this is what the church needs to understand. They're going to add to Scripture. They'll deny the Scripture. They'll also, because of the absence of scriptural truth, produce a life that lacks godliness. They will typically weed out passages which are related to godliness. Things that Scripture forbids will be excluded or softened. So the whole truth is not being brought to bear. So even if they have a chaplain come in there at Harvard who really believes the truth, do you think he'll be allowed to say any of those things? There'll be an absence of godliness, of maturity, of spirituality, because error can never produce godliness. It can build a big church, though. It, uh, it can make the name of the false teacher well known. It can bring in lots of money. And thus it can appear to be blessed by God. And beloved, just as a footnote, you know, listen, false teachers are all over the place. They may talk about Jesus, they may talk about God, but the heart of their ministry will not be the word of God. And so we find this answer again as we look back at 1 Timothy chapter four, verse two. What does their teaching produce? Verse two says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron." What's that mean? Just this, principle number four, in identifying the signs of a false teacher. They look sincere They look religious, they sound sincere, but on the inside they do the opposite. So you have to look closely at the life. What's the product of the life? They appear to be religious, Uh, They appear to be pastors or priests or chaplains like Epstein uh, or religious leaders of one kind or another. They undoubtedly will look sincere. They undoubtedly will say the right things. They will look like they want to help people have a better life or be closer to God. They might carry a Bible. They can say all the correct Christian things. They want the heart of God, but inside they're the opposite. The way they conduct themselves will show. The way they really think will become apparent because they're hypocrites. They do the opposite of what they say they believe. It's a facade. Uh, They mask the demon face with a mask of religiosity. They mask the demon voice with a voice of understanding, a voice of concern, a voice of compassion. Uh, But they're pretending to exalt God whom they don't exalt at all. In Psalm chapter 138 verse 2, and I just read this in my quiet time just a few days ago, so I'll share it with you. He The psalmist says this, I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have marked this, you have magnified your word according to all your name. What an astounding statement that is. God has declared that his written word is equal to his own magnificence. In other words, there is no way to exalt God when you misuse his word. Do you understand that? He exalted his word equal to the magnificence of his own name. How important is it to make sure you get it right? So you have to listen very carefully then to what false teachers say. You have to look very carefully and see what that teaching produces. And you have to be able to discern the departure Sometimes that's easier to do. Sometimes that may be more subtle. And, and we had a number of questions after last service. So I want to make sure that I cover those today because you asked for some for instance. I'm going to give you one. Um, it's very big today among false teaching of the Word of Faith movement. Now listen, this is how it goes. One of the common problems among false teachers today is they change the focus of the gospel from God to humanity. Now, a biblical perspective is that without God's help, we are hopelessly lost. He takes the first step. He draws us to himself. He enables us to believe and confess, and he saves us. We are powerless without him. And the most common error among Word of Faith teachers, and that includes guys like Stephen Furtick and Tommy Barnett and Joyce Meyer and Keith Copeland and Andrew Womack and dozens of others, and you can look them up, or I can give you some lists in case you're listening to them is to give to humans power. Faith, they claim, brings power. This is certainly not true, but is foundational error of this movement. Rather than having a biblical perspective, they teach that if you have faith, they claim, your faith gives you the power to do amazing things. Faith is a force. That's what they teach. And words contain that force. So speaking, Faith-filled words gives you the power to change your life. Now, it's not that God enables us to do things because we trust Him and obey Him and He brings forth whatever it is He wants for us. It's that we wield the same kind of power that God has. That's the issue. Now, this is not a new concept, but it is a very popular concept. And it makes its way out in a lot of things. But it's the same claim made by all who teach that law of attraction. The idea is that speaking positive words brings success and health and prosperity while speaking negatively brings trouble and failure and sickness and disease. Now this law has been promoted by self-help gurus all along, positive thinking adherents, Rhonda Byrne and The Secret, the book The Secret Oprah Winfrey, Eckhart Tolle, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, and there's a number of other ones that embrace the exact same thing. Napoleon Hill taught, quote, whatever the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve, end quote. Common expressions include name it and claim it or, or bab it and blab it and grab it or whatever But it it makes its way into sports too. This is very dangerous, see? Because, and many of you who played uh, sports in a secular arena know this, that you visualize and you you speak positive things about what you're gonna do that will produce positive things in good play, see? Now listen, there's a difference between, I used to teach my baseball players this. If you're in the field, whatever the situation might be, you should be thinking, if the ball comes to me, what am I gonna do, okay? What's my first choice? What's my second choice? How am I gonna respond if the ball's hit to me? right? So you teach that. That's all different. That's way different. You know, if you're a receiver, what am I going to do? If the, if the defensive back does this, what am I going to do? If the play is broken, where am I going to go? That's a good thing. Speaking positive things about what you're going to do, that doesn't work at all. That's the word of faith movement, okay? Somehow speaking positive things over yourself will make you do good things. And, and along those same false teaching lines is that a lack of faith is spiritual limitation. See, that's always it. Whenever you bring this and confront people with this, well, it's just because you don't have the lack of faith to produce it. In Matthew thirteen fifty three through 58, this is mis- misquoted all the time, misquoted all the time by Word of Faith. It's about Jesus in his hometown, and he's not getting the same kind of response that he got elsewhere. You remember this probably. He noted that quote of prophets, not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. In verse 58, he says, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, I'd like you to take a look at what Stephen Furtick says about these things. Now, let, me, let me tell you, if you're listening to elevation, any elevation thing, you're listening to any kind of teaching by Stephen Furtick, you're being fed one false thing after another. I'm only just touching the tip of the iceberg here. There's a ministry here in town that models itself after elevation. And it's very large. Don't mistake that. For truth, Just because a large number of people are deceived doesn't mean that they're somehow probably right. But here's what Stephen Furtick says. Quote, you can look this up. The power of God was in Jesus. He's, He's teaching on this passage. The healing power of God, the restoring power of God, the same power that made the demons flee was in Nazareth. Mark this. But Jesus could not release it. Jesus could not release it. He's limited. Because it was trapped in their unbelief. You see the problem? Now they have the power to either allow Jesus to work or keep Jesus from working. Is Jesus limited in any way by whether we believe he can do it or can't do it? No. Did you know a lot of times when he healed people, he did that because of faith? But there are plenty of times he did it without faith. If you think about what about the uh, the high priest's servant? He gets his ear chopped off when Jesus is being led to the cross. What does Jesus do? Does the high priest servant come to him and say, Jesus, I know you can do all things. Please heal me. And he says, well, I've never seen such great faith. Of course I'll heal you. What does he do? No, he just grabs the ear and slaps it back on there. Right? Is Jesus limited in any way? See what this teaching is? You've been empowered now to restrict the movement of Christ in the congregation or in your own life or to release it. And then he says this. And there's one thing that even Jesus can't do. One thing that even the Son of God can't do. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. And then he says, I see you all looking at me like, is that true? So, you know, that gives me some hope that maybe there's someone who's not quite as deceived as the rest of the 35,000 people sitting in there right then. And just thinking, whoa, that doesn't sound right. You know, they're barely, they're on the cusp, you know, of maybe being delivered. But he says, hey, don't do that. And I've heard guys here in this town say, don't Bible check me on this. Don't Bible check me. Just believe what I have to say. He says, You say, is that true? I thought you could do anything. But it said, this is what Furtick says, he could not. He wanted to, he was prepared to, he was able to. The power of God was in Nazareth, but it was trapped in their perspective. End quote. See, that's word of faith, move it, right? You have the power to release it. You have the power to restrain it. You have the power to bring on yourself negative things because of how you speak this word of faith or bring to yourself positive things. This is a huge deception and a big, very common denominator in word of faith movement. There's a gigantic difference between Jesus not doing many miracles because of their unbelief and Jesus being unable to exercise God's power because he was entirely powerless to do so. And Furtick and, and many of the other Fort of faith teachers put the power in the hands of the unbelievers rather than in God's hands. Jesus wasn't blocked, God wasn't powerless, yet Stephen Furtick claims that he was. And there's tons of other things that they say uh, from a seared conscience. Faith is a force, this one, and words are the containers of that force, and you have the right to wield that force, and you can. And, and this being made in God's image means we share in his divine nature. Is that right? Do we share in His divine nature? No, we are hopelessly lost and dead in our sin. We don't share automatically in His divine nature. The only good thing is that that last song we sing that we have in us is what Christ has put in us. How about this? Salvation brings health and wealth as the right of all believers. Which undermines everything that we read about Scripture and what we know about church history and how God has used difficult things in the life of believers to create disciples who were very powerful because of what He'd done. See? It's not the right of all believers to be healthy and wealthy. And there's nothing inherently sinful about the fact that you are healthy or have a lot of money. And we've looked at that before. So I don't want to mistake that. It's just, you see, it mixes truth with the lie. And then the whole thing is contaminated. That you have the right. That's the right of your, uh, of, uh, because of who you are. And you speak those positive words. That will be how you exercise your faith. And of course, God speaks to Word of Faith leaders directly. Direct revelation to Word of Faith leaders. God told me. You listen to him for just a short time. You will hear that over and over again. God told me. So how did he tell you that? Was that a direct revelation? If you ask him, yes it was. God spoke directly to me. So now you're an apostle. Right? Now, that you, now you have direct revelation from God. So whatever you say is on the same line as the Scripture itself. Is that right? You see, that's a, that's a big problem. But it sounds so good, God told me this, and then it's going to be something that sounds very, very, very spiritual and very, very heart of God-ish. See? God told me to do this. So these are issues that are, that are huge. And, and, but the problem with the modern church is, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, that's not a huge deal, Right? Did you hear the names that scripture calls those who teach those things? How they exclude what Jesus actually said? Or they dumb it down or soften it up so it's not so abrasive and and doesn't come across so harsh. Or it can't mean that because that's not the heart of God. That can't mean that because God's love. You see? That's a huge problem. To make their claims appear coherent. These teachers twist scripture. They distort its obvious meaning like Furtick just did, which they exclude things that would promote sound doctrine. They go beyond what God has actually said and what Jesus actually said to fanciful imaginations about the spiritual realm because God told them this, see? And I get this all the time. The Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. When I question false teaching and false activity, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. Really? The Holy Spirit can contradict what the Word of God actually says. Is that what He's going to do? See, these are the kind of platitudes that you get back because people are deceived. And that leads us into this next section, just appropriately, 1 Timothy 6.4. Paul helps Timothy and the church understand God's perspective and the signs they should look for. Here's the next one. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means, here it is, of gain, right? Because I'm godly and and the Lord loves me, I'm gonna be wealthy. It's always that. Was that here? It's that now. But Paul gives Timothy this next sign, he says he is conceited and understands nothing. Now, not, you know, they're sincere, they sincerely believe what they say, so perhaps they could be right. No, he doesn't say that. As soon as you start mishandling the Word of God, the Bible calls you what? Conceited. As soon as you start leaving things out, as soon as you start manipulating it around to say what you'd like it to say, conceited is the verb tofuo, and it's in the perfect passive indicative, and it means to be enveloped in smoke or engulfed in smoke. This is such a great, is such a great uh, description. Perfect passive indicative just means they're in a settled state of being engulfed in their own smoke. That helps you get the scriptural perspective of false teaching. They're engulfed in their own smoke. Somebody who cannot humbly bow beneath the truth of the Word of God but sets out to exclude some things and teach some new things, they cannot and will not allow the Word of God to take the lead in preaching, but instead have to somehow manufacture something to say that's interesting and engaging or whatever it is. See, as soon as they start doing that, the Bible just calls them conceited. And really the things that they do are just as ancient as the demons who were informing them as we saw. It's just pure smoke when your teaching excludes the clear words of Jesus, the doctrine that's intended to have as a result godliness, then you have set your teaching up as superior to that of the scriptures, and the epitome of arrogance is what the scripture calls you. Inflated with your own sense of self-importance, Peter says they're so arrogant. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2, and this is the last place I'll have you turn, and we're going to wrap up, but you're going to see this. I want you to see this because it's just so brutal. If you're one of those who is still kind of in the the corner, like this is not a big deal. Why are we making such a big deal about this? I mean, I've listened to some of these people. They're very sincere or whatever. And you think that they're legitimate and all of that, even after what I've told you and and the numerous other things you can look up on your own. This should help you, okay? Uh, And and very similar language here because you have the same tutors. Who are they? Demons. It's always going to be the same kinds of people who do this. Here it says this. Look at verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people. So in other words, what's he talking about? Israel of old, false prophets were there. and We've looked at that. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So they're always going to manipulate it for their own good or for destruction on your part. You believe that and you're deceived and headed to destruction even denying the master who bought them. What's that mean? Just changing the gospel so that it's, it's minimizing Jesus and what Jesus has actually done. There's no good thing in us except what Christ has done. And that Christ's sinless perfection and Christ's uh, at, uh, atonement on our behalf, that he rose from the dead, all, all those kinds of things get manipulated around. Things that he actually said about what's going to be required. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to follow me. If you're going to seek your life, you're going to lose it. You lose your life, you're going to find it. Those kinds of things get excluded. They always do. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Beloved, false teachers always appeal to that. They always appeal to the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes. And the boastful pride of life. That you're going to be important. That you're going to have wealth. That you're going to be respected. The Lord's going to take care of you. That you're in his favor. That you're in his eye. Whatever it is. See, it always appeals to sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Of course right? As soon as you made it about you, as soon as you made it about your power and what you can do, the way of the truth is always malign. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They're always out to get what they can get, okay? False teachers always have that, and we're going to see that in our passage, but it's always about money. It always comes up being about money. Look up some of these guys and find out what their net worth is. So if you're leading the church and your net worth is 500 million or 200 million or 300 million, There's a huge problem with that, beloved. I'm sorry, okay? And there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, but if you've just amassed to yourself this fortune, you built your own kingdom and not God's kingdom, and you're super wealthy, that's a big flag, okay? Because it's always about money. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God, look at this, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, so they followed Satan himself and, and uh, walked after Satan and he did not spare them. And verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he's comparing false teachers with those who are being destroyed in these judgments, okay? That's a pretty important thing to understand. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them market an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, beloved, did you know there's churches right now, Protestant churches across the world, who are embracing the very lifestyle that Lord, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for, and made it an example of what happens if that's the lifestyle you represent, and yet some teachers will tell you that the Lord has created you that way, and that's the way he loves you, and he expects you to stay just like you are, and love love. You see, this is a real problem, okay? Because once you start down the road of deception, that's a very slippery slope. It can't mean that, right? Because that's not loving. Verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men from what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day by day by their lawless deeds. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. They're lumped right in with all of this wickedness. Those who mishandle the word of God, especially those who indulge in its flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. A false teacher's arrogantly refuse to accept the simple truth of God which links with godliness and they may try to pass themselves off as humble and meek and self-effacing but they're the most conceited who affirm things contrary to the word of God redefine it, create new things, exclude it and he is conceited and he understands, Scripture says, nothing. He understands nothing. Now if you asked him, he wouldn't admit to that But as soon as someone departs from the clear teaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit doesn't describe you as, well, he just doesn't know enough, you know. No, it says they don't know anything. And we'll just wrap these two descriptions, these two signs from verse four into principle number five. And signs of a false teacher, they're egotistical, oblivious charlatans. These are very hard words. He's conceited and knows nothing. He's an arrogant ignoramus. In other words, it's not okay, see. Why is this a big deal? Because scripture makes it a big deal. Because what the word says, what does it mean by what it says and how does that apply to me? There's a way to approach the word of God that is appropriate. Like any piece of literature, you have, the words mean what they mean. You have to understand them. It's not open to whatever you hoped that it would mean or you can't understand it. So it's just, it has to be something else or it can't be that. It's not that. They don't know anything, but they are inflated about what they think they know, and as you watch them teach, they parade around their imagined intelligence and their imagined scholarship and their imagined superior understanding and their imagined, here it is, deeper insights. That's what I heard in Arizona. Well, you just don't understand because this is a lot deeper than you've ever been, and you just don't have the faith to accept it. How do you answer that (laughs) from a deceived person? You're telling me I don't understand, and you're the one who's deceived under a false teacher. They're imagined religious acumen, but Paul says the truth is they don't know anything because you can't know anything apart from the revelation of God. That's it. Anything about spirituality, you can't know any of that if you don't t- carefully study the word. They claim to know new truth, some new insight. They claim to know things that no one else knows. And I've had uh, a number of you have come up who have relatives in cults and in false, under false teachers who say, well, they just tell me when I talk about it that it's just a new insight, right? It, it, we know things that you don't know. So how could you possibly understand? They have pompous ignorance all about the solutions to everything. They don't know anything. That's what the scripture says. But they've been doing it and saying it for so long, First Timothy 4 says, their conscience is seared as with an iron. It doesn't even register with them anymore. If you listen to their interviews and you listen to what they say and they, and they talk on, on, uh, on camera and you just listen, and you're like, how could you possibly say that? Do you see what your face looks like when you're saying that? And, and they don't understand because they're seared. They've been doing it for so long, it doesn't register for them anymore. And the followers are deceived, obviously, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, undiscerning many times, unable, apart from the Lord, turning on a light in His great mercy and long-suffering to allow the followers to be delivered from their deception. That's the only way it could happen. And when you say these things kindly but firmly to these followers of false teachers, they look at you as from a stupor, as it were. They don't understand what you're saying. They don't understand why you're saying it because they feel spiritual. They feel like they're doing what God wants them to do. See, and, and it's like you're speaking a foreign language. And we won't look at this today because we're out of time, but Paul writes this next sign of a false teacher, so let's get your, uh, get your uh, interest going. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. There's another sign of a false teacher. False teaching leads to confusion about God. It always leads to confusion disappointment when misplaced expectations aren't met, and many times false professions of faith because they don't understand what the gospel really says. As we said at the beginning and all through, charlatans exist because the real thing exists. Forgeries are never made of forgeries. They are not the truth, but they're proof of the truth. And as soon as the truth is out there, Satan is always concocting a lie. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's not the truth and you believe it. So the dangers of false teaching shouldn't be minimized or ignored because the Bible doesn't minimize it and the Bible doesn't ignore it. And the Lord expects us to be, beloved, specialists in identifying what is false. And we have seen the scriptures warn us again and again about false prophets and false teachers. And so no believer should take those things lightly. It matters. And the goal is not to say bad things about someone. And hopefully I didn't do that today. I don't want to be uh, saying bad things. I just want to point out errors and what the, the clear teaching of the Word of God actually is so we can know the difference between them. Uh, the healthful words of Christ, sound doctrine, which leads to true repentant faith and godliness and increased trust in God and peace and joy and new life and obedience. See? And so that's why we do what we do and that's why we go through these passages which we really can't help but get to this point. We have to teach through it. That's what it means and so that helps us come away then with an understanding to become really a specialist in identifying the falseness and perhaps that'll be helpful in your family or in your own life as you evaluate what you've been listening to and what you're thinking uh, perhaps some of the books you've read and things you perhaps think are right but now you realize are not. So let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of, of salvation. We're so grateful for Jesus for Uh, the turning on of the light that we can see and the blessed gospel and and what it requires. We thank you for uh, your word and how clear it is, how we can understand it by looking at other parts of the word. It's not dependent on, it's not our opinion, it's not something we think, it's just what your word says. We're required to say exactly what it says and then let the chips fall where they may. So, Father, I pray that you'll help us, whatever, wherever our place may be, whether we've been deceived, uh, we're right on the verge of being deceived, we're uh, not clear about what we should believe about some certain thing. Lord, help us to study Your Word clearly, then we'll know what Your Word says. Your Holy Spirit will tutor us, and then we'll be able to be able to be discerning. And we pray this in the name of Your Son Jesus, and forsake. And all God's people said, Amen.